everybody, this is Charles Sand. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 17th, 2022. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Such drama. And we have, we, uh, I'm trying some Shatner pauses. We have a well, return you, visit. You, I was wondering if maybe you forgot my name, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, he's like, ah, oh, who is this guy again? Well, no, I was just so excited to introduce, we have a returning co-host of one of our favorite co-hosts of all time. Kath Tolentino is back with us today. Just this Yay. week only. Hi, Kath. Hello. Uh, and this week we're going to be talking about one film critic's inability to understand relating to people who don't look exactly like you and Pixar's <laughs> turning red. We're going to be talking about Jane Campion <laughs> and some real foot and mouth moments. In tech news, we're going to be talking about a new Mac, which is which is like, they're good lately. Like, that's my headline with Macs. Like, they're, they're good at stuff these days. And uh, we're going to be following that all up with an Ask No Film School about, basically, we've gotten a couple emails being like, why are you guys so so mean to crypto? And so we're going to be mean to crypto for more. So if nice. you're like really pro crypto, you should just, when we get the Ask No Film School, stop because we're going to have fun with that one. And then I've been thinking more about our Ask No Film School last week with why aren't we boycotting yeah. Chinese companies? So I think we're probably going to end up talking about that a little more because I think there is a lot more to talk about there. So much good stuff. Stay so, in. Stay to the end. That. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a crypto bro, just skip the crypto content. <laughs> But we still want we want to we want to convince you, Crypto Bros. You're welcome here. Uh, all that this week on the No Film School podcast. So our top story this week: If you have a child under eight, you already know that Pixar released a new movie on Friday called Turning Red. I not only know; I've already had it on like three times in my <laughs> in my home. That's how much I know. So my kid is a little too young for Turning Red. We tried to watch it and she really was into it. And then we got to some of the like hormonal stuff and she's yeah. like, what's going on? And I was like, you're probably a little too young. But we had the experience like six months ago when Luca came out where like literally by Monday, we had already seen Luca three times. Luca's <laughs> also great. Doesn't quite deal like the amazing thing about Turning Red. I mean, I haven't seen all of it. We had to turn it off about 20 minutes in. But like you see where it's going, which is like, this is a movie that's going to reckon with puberty. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, good for you, Pixar. This is going to be great. And I was like, yeah. totally sold. It's all my, the opening my, is awesome. Yeah, my seven year old was really curious about it, and he knew it was not quite his age, but was interested. And the three year old was like, very like, this is not okay for me. Like, this is not for me. Like, he mm. knew enough to know that. But anyway, who ca- who cares about that? Why did I even add that? But our listeners don't have kids. <laughs> I don't think. Anyway, I mean, if you're listening to us at this point, you know it's a little bit of a dad cast and you've made your peace with it. <laughs> so, Kath, do you want to brief us as to the the ridiculous, I can't believe this happened in 2022 drama about uh, Turning Red? Yeah, like, I'll preface by saying that, like, I can still believe it, but it is, like, frustrating. So, basically, the managing director of Cinema Blend, Sean O'Connell, which is, like, a film website, posted a review about turning red where he basically said like this film is extremely limiting in scope and basically like for that reason i think it is bad and exhausting and said i mean i'll just quote uh, he said i recognize the humor in the film but connected with none of it by rooting turning red very specifically in the asian community of toronto the film legitimately feels like it was made for domi she's friends and immediate family members which is fine, but also a tad limiting in scope. He said, if you are in this target audience, it might work very well for you. I am not in it. This was exhausting. And then he proceeded to get completely trashed online and he apologized immediately and took the review down. (laughs) But there's just so much to unpack. (laughs) I just like, this is the reason why I wanted to come back on the podcast because I just have a lot of feelings about it. I'm not angry about it. I'm just like over it. I'm just so over having to constantly like tell people why our point of view is important or worthwhile. Every single movie is, you know, if it's a good movie is specific and rooted in a a very specific culture, but you don't have to, you know, you don't ask Martin Scorsese to explain why he is making the Irishman, right? Or like, why, hey, P.T. Anderson, like, why did you, why is licorice pizza 
so specific about San Fernando Valley in the 1970s. Like, tell us why we should care. That's what I find like really annoying about this whole thing is that someone can basically say like, I think this movie's bad because it is not about me. Well, you know? and I, I think you're like, I really love when you're like, I'm not angry. I'm just over it. Like for me, I'm just tired. Mm-hmm. I'm like, cause like how many times do we have to explain to people that like other stories have the potential to be interesting, even if they're not a mirror reflecting back your own experience? Like how many, like, it's not even like whether or not it's important. It's just like, you can also have a good movie with characters that don't look like, like, it's like a basic operating principle of which everyone in the world has already gotten over that hurdle. Like the massive market in China for American movies means that that audience can watch a movie made in America. Like they can watch Back to the Future. And even though they're not from Pasadena or wherever, uh, no, San, not San Dimas, whatever that town is, the fictional Back to the Future, they can still enjoy Back to the Future because they're like, oh, it's a journey and I'm connecting to these characters. And like, like yeah. the vast majority of the world can do this. So people why can't of color we... do this work all the time. <laughs> We're doing it all, if we do it, this is just how, how we operate. I have, a que- I have a question. We Maybe deal. I missed this. Is this, this writer of the, of the review a white man? Yes. Oh, Sean yes. O'Connell sounds a little Irish yeah. to me. No, I, yeah, I just want to, I just want to <laughs> I'm sure. saying as an Irish, as someone, I mean, I'm an American, but I have like half Irish descent. I, I'm not, not one of those guys who's like, I'm Irish. Like my yeah, people right. came over a long, long time ago, but like, you know, you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a white man. So, yeah, yeah. So my 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 just thing about that is like, does he not have enough movies about white men in puberty? Because there's a lot. Like oh my if that's God. what yeah. he needs to see. Yeah, like, like because again. what right? Because what I what I think about is it's not even just that asking people to do like uh, there's so many things that come into mind for me, but one is just yeah, it's you're being challenged a little bit more than you've ever been challenged before, but you've literally never been challenged for Mm -hmm. the first hundred years of cinema and television and the options like, like again, because Charles and I are white men, cisgendered white males. We often talk about this idea of monoculture and then we kind of, we've been corrected and now we always refer to the correction as like what was monoculture was kind of our culture. Mm-hmm. So that thing that vanished and became pluralized is like now like, oh, everybody else also has reflect. We were just like, yeah, it's, oh, it, what's the movie about? It's about a white straight guy. Like that's pretty much the history of cinema. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a point where it's like, it's about a woman. <laughs> like mm-hmm. More than it's just about like, and then you get to the point where it's about a young Asian girl going mm-hmm. through a transition that we've seen men go through at, many times. And I, I just say I have hope for the future only generally speaking, I don't have hope for the future, but in one way that I do have hope for like even maybe past tomorrow, given what's going on in the world right now. But one thing that gives me hope for the future, one little tiny aspect is that my son who's seven watches these kinds of things and he, it doesn't hit any weird, like he has no problem with that. Like relating to a female protagonist, relating to a protagonist who's not a white, boy, there's like, that is not an issue. And I noticed it very early on with him and his generation as I've, what I've observed. And I did not have that for me as a little kid, I was only like, well, is there a, is there a guy like me? And usually the answer would be yes. But Mm -hmm. like, who am I gonna, which of the guys like me is the most like me? Cause you get your pick, like which ghostbuster are you? You know, you, there's a lot to choose from. You could be Han, you could be Luke. Like, you know, there's a lot of guys like you, if you're like me, but That's so for funny. a lot of trying people, to, there's trying not to find, even one. Trying to find a Halloween costume to wear as an Asian person growing up. It's like that you get basically Lucy Liu from Charlie's Angels and that's about it. Like there's no, there's just no one. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, and and not only that, but now we've broken some ground where we're starting to say like, hey, we're just going to cast, I think I mentioned this example last week, but like, we're just going to cast Denzel Washington as Macbeth and it works and mm-hmm. we don't have to talk about why. Mm-hmm. And that's great, you know, I think. It's not great well, when it goes the other way. Like when you're like, hey, let's take this definitely, like that's a meme. Like, Ryan <laughs> Gosling. Sammy Jason, uh, Sammy Jason right. Jr. Right, yeah. right. Ryan Gosling as Obama or whatever. But yeah, <laughs> that's the, uh, it works when it goes the other way. Certainly. Well, I think the other thing here for me is that like, this goes back to the whole, like, you know, 
cancel culture thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again. If I read another article in the Atlantic about cancel culture and like all council cancel culture is, is asking people in power to spend as much time thinking about what they say as everybody else does. Like mm. when you're powerless. You're always conscious of what you say. Mm. Like yeah. if you're gay in an environment in which you're not, you could be fired for being gay. You're very conscious that you can't say that you're gay because you potentially face repercussions for it. And all we're asking is that like, if you have power, Please, please also think a second and like a moment's thinking would be like, oh yeah, I bet there's like, if he writes for a film like platform, there must be at least one movie in his life he's seen that isn't just a mirror. Like, is there not a single Wong Kar Wai film he's ever loved? Is there not a single like, like, is there not a single film made by like, not about Irish looking? Like, does he only exclusively watch Boston Mob movies? Like, and like, there's enough of them, he could probably just sustain himself on that. But like, surely if he thought about it for two seconds, but it's the thoughtlessness, it's the like, I can just say this without even thinking about it for a second. It's so like, exhausting. Well, I feel like, see, I feel like I want to caveat too, because speaking of movies about boys going through puberty, I was, I hated boyhood, thought it was super boring, not relevant to me, like, and I feel like I should be entitled to have that opinion. Yeah. Like, you can't sure. force anyone to, like, like your movie, right? I mean, we can't force him to like Turning Red. It's just this attitude that, like, you know, oh, this film is so specific, therefore it is not good. That really bothers me. It's just so lim- It's just so limiting. Even if it's it, whatever, like, it's so... I, I'm so tired in a way of like people who, of a certain perspective that we've seen over and over and over again. It's not interesting at all. Like it would be much more interesting to see more people of any kind, even if they are familiar to my kind, like breaking ground, doing weird stuff. Like it's just so boring to get the same stuff. Like do we, we do not need more coming of age of a certain dynamic Mm -hmm. style from a certain perspective. We have it. We have it like in every period. We have it in every era. We have it with every type of music. <laughs> like we cover the beats. Like I know it by heart. I never need to see it again. You know. But it's also, I mean, it is interesting to think about positions of power, right? Like, Kath, you have the freedom to hate Boyhood, just as like a filmmaker. You're like, I'm a filmmaker. I don't like that movie. There's a bunch of stuff where we just have the freedom to not like. Like I'm working on a new book, and like the part I was working on this morning was I was specifically trying to give a lot of context to some things I'm going to trash. Because I'm like, in order to talk about certain concepts I'm talking about here, I'm going to have to say some negative things about movies where I don't think they did it well. Mm. And here I'm going to give context as to why I'm picking these particular movies and giving them a hard time. Like The Hangover, which is a perfectly fine movie and I enjoy, like completely whiffs its opening. Like it does nothing with its opening. It's such a waste. And I'm mm. like, and so I'm talking and I'm like explaining like why I feel like it's fair to dig in to it because it's a book. But like as a human being, I can just have the opinion that like, well, I mostly kind of like the hangover. The opening doesn't work. Like, but like once you're in a point where you're like, I'm a critic, I'm writing for a magazine. I'm the chief editor at, at a mm. platform. I have an audience. Like there should be more thought. And like, you know, I think putting some thought into like, okay, we already have 5,000 coming of age movies about white boys. And this is the 5,000th and one. So I can evaluate it on its own terms because it is something that's saturated in the culture as opposed to we have the history of Pixar is like 30 very dude, bro, buddy movies. And like, they're good. I've watched a lot of Pixar in pandemic. I've got a kid. They're really good. And like Coco, every time Coco gets me choked up, like Coco is so good. Mm, but like, this is their first like attempts to do like um, female protagonists go through puberty. They're trying to boldly do some things that are a little bit more complicated and challenging for them as a cultural institution. And I think one of the jobs of a critic like theoretically, one of the jobs of the critic is to understand the context of a film within the culture of cinema and help audiences understand that. Mm. And so it's like, you know, it, that's a different thing than just having a personal opinion of not liking a movie, which is like totally fair. And like he could individually just not like the movie, but like put some thought into the analysis of the overall content of what's occurring here, especially because like I also am really interested in things that make me empathize. Like I was thinking about this with Royal Tenenbaums the other day. Royal Tenenbaums are a bunch of privileged motherfuckers. Like, they are rich as fuck. Like, there are so many things in that movie that should make me annoyed at them. Their big, beautiful house. Like, there's so much <laughs> stuff that if executed poorly, I wouldn't like. 
But I love those characters and I love that movie and I have total empathy for them and all of their messiness because the filmmaker did the work to take the story about like a bunch of rich people, which is like not easy for me to connect to like people that like none of those characters are really worrying about how that house is paid for. Right. That is not conscious on anyone's mind, except maybe Ethelene. And there's some wonder if maybe she wrote the book after the divorce to keep the house. But anyway, short of Ethelene, nobody's worried about money. And it's like, that's a hard thing for me to get over, but the filmmaker does such a good job of showing me them as people. I get over that hurdle. And it's like, well, that didn't happen for you with boyhood. You weren't able to get over the hurdle, but like mm-hmm. only watching the first 20 minutes of turning red, I was like, Oh, this is great. I remember watching it with my daughter and being like, you know, when you're nine, I'm really looking forward to watching this. Mm-hmm. Like the filmmaker is doing the work to engage you with the characters. I mean, the other thing about it too, is it's not just a movie about puberty. Like what I loved about the film is that it ties into themes of like family and identity, um, assimilation, like, you know, how much of yourself do you hold on to when your family is trying to fit in with this new culture that it's a part of? And those are themes that I think all of us can relate to on some level being from America or Canada. And I got really choked up watching this because of that. And those are themes that that a lot of different films grapple with. You know, The Godfather grapples with those exact same themes, just with a lot more guns and, you know, with Italians instead of Chinese Canadians. And I feel like that's something that we need to recognize, you know, like just because of a film is from, has a slightly different sort of like exterior or, you know, aspects about it that might not be familiar. There's still a message that's in it for you, you know? So would a fair headline for this podcast be turning red is just godfathers for Asian women? I think it, I think it is (laughs) for, 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 for young Asian girls. Yeah. Like it's, it's about the same things. (laughs) Yeah. It's about the pressures of family. Yeah. And how your culture survives in a culture that doesn't always respect it. Exactly. And when you feel, you know, like she and Michael Corleone make the di- make different decisions. Michael chooses to keep to uphold the family traditions and she chooses to like uphold her sense of identity and in doing so remains connected to like her ancestors in a way that her mom and her grandmother didn't. But they both choke their brother-in-law in a car. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> and it's such a distinctly there's this is it takes place in Toronto, but there's such a distinct American identity thing to the melting pot. And we come here. The immigrant experience, I guess, is what you is, is fair yeah. to say. It's true. Yeah. Canada here, too. But the idea in as a person, as I, I'm not a practicing religious Jew, but culturally and genetically and whatever else it mix up in there, I, my parents came from at some point further back in the line, immigrants who had a different culture and came from a different country. And the Godfather and the timing of it and the era is an, is another thing where it's like, no, they weren't in the mafia. No, they weren't Italian. I don't think they choked any brother-in-laws in cars, but they certainly wanted to. But there's definitely a relationship where you can see the like, oh yeah, I know what that's like to try and mix in, but to hold on to the past or to be saddled with things from the old world or whatever it is. This is not true just to, yeah, it's just, these are kind of deeper truths and that's what storytelling is supposed to do. So this guy's just completely lost in the surface, which is a shame (laughs) because like, because this is all universal. Like that's what makes a great story is tapping into something universal, but that's also really specific. So we get to see ourselves in the other or the other in ourselves. Mm. You want to break it down. George, I think you really hit on something there. Like, That's why I feel like I don't feel angry about this. I don't feel like this guy needs to like, you know, be canceled. I just feel, yeah, I feel a little bit of sadness that he's like blind to the beauty of this film um, because he just can't see past, you know, what's on the exterior. Although like, I will say like, some people are just like that. My boyfriend cannot watch any black and white movie (laughs) at all because he just feels like, 
I don't know, it reminds him too much of like what his mom watches at home all day or something like that. And it makes him feel sad. I don't know. He like can't watch any black and white movie <laughs> because to him, it's like all black and white movies are a genre. I'm trying, like to, I'm trying to work on this with him, but you can't. Yeah, I mean, that's you know. a challenge. It's a big challenge. I did get him to watch, what did we watch the other day? We watched Seven Samurai. We watched some oh, of the classic Samurai movies. I mean, I was going to say Seven Samurai should change anybody's mind. Like, it's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. It's so magnificent. You would anyway. think that that would, like, help anyone get over, <laughs> like... A version yeah, I mean, of black and white films. I get it once. I showed a clip. I mean, this was a long time ago, but I showed a clip from Manhattan once, and a student raised their hand, and, and it was the first week of class. I don't show Woody Allen anymore, because, like, he molests children. Like, yeah. I, like I, there's other anyway. examples I can pull from. I don't need to teach Woody Allen anymore. But... This was a while ago. And he, a student raised his hand and was like, are we only going to watch old movies in this class? <laughs> and like, Manhattan's not that old. It came out after I was born. And, I, and at that point, I was like, all right, everything is black and white for the rest of the semester. Nice. Like, if that's what you're going to do, like, we're going to do it. Yeah, um, learn to appreciate. And, oh, yeah. But by the end of the semester, he was still a punk who was like, I don't need to learn anything from old movies. I wish the story was like he came around. But that's Damn. Not yeah. I mean, you know, some people never change. I like that kid. He was super nice. He just was like, old movies are boring. Wow. Yeah. Well, the yeah. pacing is different. I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that it's hard for people to crack through older narrative structure or context of, you know, it's, it's hard to read Moby Dick. It's hard to read the Iliad. <laughs> like, things were different. It wasn't, hard, tales. It wasn't yeah. hard to read the Iliad when it was written thousands of years ago or, or spoken. It, was, it yeah. was easy then. So the thing is more like the old stuff is is only harder to unlock. If you're patient enough to get the key from a teacher or from whatever, you can unlock a whole treasure chest. But if you're not, it's just less treasure for you. And that's disappointing. But I really do think that people, if they, if they understand that it's just about accessing what's in there, like getting a little bit past some of its differences, then it's actually, there's plenty there that's, that's easy to get. Which nice. circles back around to the whole point, which is like yes. one of the things we expect from professional critics. Is oh, to yeah. Be the good point. I didn't even realize. <laughs> You're right. Well, no. That's, that's exactly our message. That's our message <laughs> that's for Sean O'Connell right of Cinema Blend. Yeah. If you're Just listening, a Sean. little more work, Sean. Just a little <laughs> bit. There's good stuff in there. Yeah. There's, it's there's, like looking at a pineapple and being like, thorns, no way. <laughs> Oh, I mean, that's the best story um, about Peter the Great, right? We'll wrap with this, is that pineapples used to be like a fancy food you would show off to like prove to people you were rich. And so someone like brought a pineapple to Peter the Great and like, you know, he never like asked, no one could give Peter the Great advice. So he saw it and was like, that's food. And like he picked it up and he just went to eat it like an apple and like sliced <laughs> his face open oh because God. no one could tell him. He was like, no, no, like, you know, who can stop him from doing what he want? He's Peter the Great. So like, you know, it all comes full circle. Pineapple. Back around. All right. Well, unfortunately, Cap, I think we're losing you now, right? That's right. Thank you, guys. So you're though. not going to get to give hot takes on Jane Campion. Oh, uh, oh man. We'll I wish I could. <laughs> we will bring you back. as, men, as and You're always welcome back. Thank you so you much, guys. Yes. That's great. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. All right. Up next in our hot take roundup, Jane Campion. <laughs> those films I really like. Who's really good. And, like, the reason why what we're about to talk about is so annoying is because, like, she's a good filmmaker who seems really smart. And, like, she clearly, like, oh, what a stupid thing she just said. So she was at the Critics' Choice Awards the other day, and she was, like, you know, she won Best Director, and she was, like, making jokes about, like, hey, Will Smith, do you want to come over and give me some tennis lessons? I'd love it. And then she said, Venus and Serena, you're such marvels. However, you don't play against the guys like I have to. And it was, like, <laughs> oh, 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 what the fuck? Oh, what the fuck? Really? Yeah. You're going to come at Venus and Serena Williams? You're really yeah. going to come at Venus and Serena Williams? I mean, there's a lot wrong with it. Intent aside, like, I do think she intended it as like a joke and was trying to be off the cuff and like, just kind of, you know, I, I mean, we could explain what happened here, but like, here's the thing. She had a big weekend. She's like deep into her playoff run here for awards for her movie. Her movie, Power of the Dog, is like racking them up. And she was at the SAG Awards where she was asked about what we talked about last week on this podcast, which was Sam Elliott's 
crazy comments about how it's too gay and not shot in the real West because there's no time machines. I mean, it's just like all his nonsense that we, we discussed. But like she was, she commented on that and she said, sorry, he was being a little bit of a B-I-T-C-H. He's not a cowboy. He's an actor. The West is a mythic space and there's a lot of room on the range. I think it's a little bit sexist. She's 100% right. And she got also, all the... There's a lot of room on the range is an amazing... Like, there's a lot of room yeah. on the range. I love that. I love that. <laughs> no, she crushed that. And that's proof that she kind of... She gets it. And like, she she nailed it. And she wasn't afraid. You know, her stars, Cody Smith McPhee, I'm not sure if I pronounced it correctly, and Benedict Cumberbatch, both had very graceful sort of like more political comments about how, you know, okay, Sam said that, we're going to ignore it and just talk about we're really proud of the movie. We think he's a little off base and of our work. But she kind of went right at it, which is fine. And she nailed it. And then she won. And then she turned around and she said something that made me think, you know, I wonder if Sam is like, oh, okay, now she can make a Western (laughs) because she's stuck in her ways and she's being a little sexist. But like, because really, like, the problem with that comment is, to state the obvious here, like Serena and Venus could crush most men at tennis. Like that's not, is to say they don't play with the boys is kind of like to say a lot of wrong things. One, that that means that they're not good, that that, that the only way to prove something is to beat a man at it, that like it, it puts a lot of, there's so much. I wish Kath was here or another woman to, or a woman to talk about this issue because I can't really address it as a man in the ways that I would like to hear it addressed here. But I just know how off base it is and it's cringy. And Venus and Serena, they've achieved at the highest level of what they do. And like I said, like they could kick my ass at tennis. That's not saying much, but like, but there's no like the playing with the boys thing. A whole other thing that I feel like you'd also connect with me on Charles is just that winning a Critics' Choice Award, winning any award for a movie is not a one-to-one with a sporting competition. That's not what it is. And I don't like, and I bristle at that comparison just on its own because I feel like it's important to keep in mind that Jane Campion kind of won, quote-unquote, by getting this movie made, by getting it seen, by being a female filmmaker who gets movies made and seen. That's the win. That, to me, is the success. And, and that's the battle she's fighting. And, and everybody's fighting against not wanting different voices in the room or at the table. And for Venus and Serena, you know, it's a totally different path and story. And so there's a lot wrong. With it. it also just seems like a leftover of another era. Like, look, this is going to happen to all of us. We're all going to be eaten by the future. This is inevitable. I remember when I was an undergrad, I had a teacher that was like so cool and arty. And he taught this class called Concept of the Avant-Garde, and he introduced me to all sorts of new ideas about, like, you know, what art could be. And then, you know, 10 years later, there was a New Yorker article about, like, how he just got eaten alive. But, like, it's just the funniest thing that, like, you know, I didn't go to a particularly famous college, but, like, the story of him getting eaten alive by a new generation of students because he thought he was still hip and the world moved and he didn't keep up. And, like, they just ate him alive. And, like, as far as like, you know, the New Yorker, he didn't get me too or anything, but he just like failed to understand the evolving culture to the extent where he was clinging to a certain period of ideas. And like, I have a sneaking suspicion that in 1992, making that joke would have flown as like a, like, you know, well, you know, but you're over there in women's sports and I'm in a, I'm in a league where we don't separate the men from the women. There's no best women director and I'm still winning these awards. Like, I could totally see that playing at a certain period in time. And the 100%. challenge is, you know, and like, it's a challenge, like the, the particularly like Jane Campion's great. I have a sneaking suspicion. She will weather this. Well, she's a very good filmmaker. She's very smart. I, I suspect that this will just be a blip on her continuing journey of, of being pretty much fucking awesome. And, but like, I just think this is like a, it's going to be like culture is going to keep growing and evolving and changing. And you, it's a lot of active work to stay involved in. I mean, you know, I'm a film professor for my day job and like, it's a gift because I'm constantly surrounded by people who are participating in the now and the next and is constant and like it, it's ever evolving, ever changing. And, you know, yeah, it's something I think about a whole lot. So like, I just think that this is like a, a moment in time kind of thing where I think she missed the context of 
she's mixed, missed a lot of overall context. And, you know, it's, it was an off-the-cuff comment. And uh, Yeah, you're uh, right. I mean, I eviscerated her, and you're right that it's not entirely fair, given the intent and given that it was probably, I mean, culturally, too. You know, yeah, it's a joke that probably plays better at home for her. I maybe I don't know, but honestly, like, this just, joke probably played ten years ago. It is really yeah, only and, within and, the last ten years that we've really started to pay attention to the extent to which, like, yeah, that, it's not a cancelable. I know we're no. not, we don't say that, but it's not a cancelable offense. I don't. Really. I mean, it's, it's, you it's more just like to decide who's canceled. Like the right, cancellation right. will come. No, I, <laughs> we. We are judge, jury, and whatever, executioner of cancellations here on the No Film School podcast. No, I I just feel that it's, like I said earlier about this to someone else, I was saying it's hard, but it's not that hard. Like, I think it's hard, but, but, the, but the reason I say it's not that hard is because when you're, you know, there's a mic in front of you, there's a mic in front of me right now, but you know where you are. You know, you're on TV, the Critics' Choice Awards in this major award circuit period for this. Yeah, there's like hundreds of people who watch that. There's not only... (laughs) We might have more listeners, honestly. But (laughs) you're also like, you're in front of a lot of people and there's just, uh, well, I'm going to be careful. Now, I know that I make mistakes. I've been called out for them in, in our world, this world, and I've addressed them and I've taken a step back and thought about them. I, so that's why I say it's hard, but it's not that hard because I think it's, you can always self-correct and you can always try to grow and be better. I hope and expect she'll look at it that way and also be like, what I would probably do, which is be like, that was not a good joke. That did not come out right. And I apologize for something that's not really funny and that uh, you know has the power to offend and damage the causes I believe in or whatever. But like, you know, it's it's... Simple enough. I think that at the same time, things are changing very quickly. And yeah, we have to be really careful. Like, we have to think about it and be aware of it. And and it is hard. But like I said, I think it's worth the challenge. And it's not that hard. Not impossible. I'm also, I'm going to take a slightly different tack here and be harder on her than I was a second ago. (laughs) We'll just keep switching. (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. Directing involves the exercise of power. I used to have a business consultant. When I had a company, I had an executive coach and my executive coach was an anarchist. And one time I asked him about that. I was like, so you're, you're an anarchist and you like are working as an executive coach. And he was like, well, just because I don't believe states can have a, should have a monopoly on power doesn't mean I don't think power exists. Power totally exists and we use it. I just don't think it should belong to countries. And, and you know, I, the, he was a great executive coach. I learned a lot. And like you, when you are directing, you're exercising you're exercising power quite a bit. It is a thing you are very conscious of. You're trying to get actors to perform. You're trying to get the DP to execute. But you're also, I heard a great quote. Stephen Daldry came in and talked to some students at the school where I teach once. And, and he said something that I've thought about a lot in the last couple of years, which is like, the tools you will need when you get there are the tools that get you there. And I think what he was talking about was that like, in order to handle a set, direct actors, work with writers, manage all of that, you have to learn a lot of skills about managing power relationships, managing having people have confidence in you, having people put faith in you, all of those things. And those are the same things that you need to get through the pitching process or the job hiring process in order to get in a position where you can direct the movie. So those same skills that are going that you need when you get there are the skills that get you there, I think is what he meant. I think about that quote a lot. So I tend to think that directors tend to be very conscious and deliberate in their uses of power, like when directors make jokes at someone's expense on set, like there's there's often more to it. And like, this was a joke at the Williams's expense. And like, it's a, it's a classic kind of power play joke of like, well, you're wonderful, but I'm competing in a different league. And like, it's interesting to watch someone who like, I cannot imagine you get to the place where you're making movies at the level you're making them in the 1990s, where like, there were not that many women who got to make those movies without having some knowledge of the nuances of power. And so it's interesting to watch a slip up like that from, you know, you have to practice how you use power to be a director. Like that is part of what you do. It's part like you, you know, and like the joke, it's not like horrifically at the Williams's expense, but it's like a little bit at their expense. It's like a slight little dig. And that slight little dig, like 
that exact kind of joke I would have made my first year teaching about a student, like not in that specific way, like not about gender or whatever, but like, you know, if I had like, if two of us were wearing this, like, I'm just making up the bad version of it, but like, we're both wearing a motorcycle jacket and, you know, I would make a joke like, oh, well, yeah, but I actually ride motorcycles or whatever. Like, um, that's not a specific example, <laughs> right. but you know, it's that kind of like dig. Right. If I had a student that was being really like disruptive in class and I had, and I'd ridden my motorcycle there and he was in a motorcycle jacket, it's that kind of joke. It's that kind of like a gentle put down of you kind of joke. Like, oh, but I actually ride motorcycles. It's that thing. I don't do that in teaching anymore because I recognized eventually that it's a dickish thing for a teacher to do. And like, I'm very conscious of it. And so it's very interesting to me to watch someone who I think of as being, I've never watched her direct on set, but you can't get to that position where you're directing at that level if you don't have some concept of how this all works. And it's interesting to watch her sort of toss off one of those like slight dig Bon Mots at such a target. It's like, it's an interesting thing. I'm not saying that like, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a small thing. I still love her movies. I don't think I'm going to stop teaching her work. I think she's great. She's obviously great. She's wonderful. She didn't camp in. But like, it is interesting to watch that because like, I don't use those jokes anymore as part of like establishing dominance in a classroom. I try and establish dominance in a classroom by like being a good teacher, but I can see how like her career has probably given her a lot of opportunities where she's had to establish dominance mm. and she might be yeah. habitual in a establishing of dominance habit yeah. because of that. Uh, yeah. I mean that, that all, that all makes sense to me. I think that, I don't know, but yeah, it feels like you don't say it by total accident. It comes from a place of, of that mentality, perhaps. And it was definitely a dig and uh, a very ill-conceived one. Yeah, I agree. All right, moving on to, to zero woke. I know that some of our <laughs> listeners are like, y'all too woke. I can say y'all. Not this, not for this Kentucky. segment. <laughs> I get to say y'all as long as I want. I went to summer camp in Kentucky. I went to Highland Middle School in Louisville. I get to say y'all. <laughs> but occasionally we hear we're a little on the woke side. So 0% woke conversation. Although, you know, there's a little woke in this. Anyway, Apple's come out with some new Macs <laughs> and they're actually exciting. And the woke bit is I just opened my review unit. It's always like tricky how much we talk about reviews, but like we get to play with something ahead of everybody else and then we have to ship it back when we're done. Their packaging is getting really, really minimal. Like, it's all cardboard now. There's like almost no styrofoam bits. It's like, as I was opening it, I was like, oh, wow, this feels way more recyclable than a Mac of five years ago, even. So there's the little woke bit. They're getting much better at that part. I think they're putting a lot of effort into it. You can really feel that it's like, oh, this packaging is designed both to be the case for the computer. If you're taking it to set, you can pack it back up in this case. It's designed to be reusable, but also recyclable. So there we go, mm. some Apple stuff. So the computer Apple announced, and what's really interesting is there weren't a lot of rumors about this until like the day before. A little context. About two years ago, Apple said, we're leaving behind Intel processors and we're moving to processors called Apple Silicon. And Apple Silicon is built on the ARM architecture, which is the same thing in iPhones and Android phones. It was originally a mobile architecture, but now it's getting super powerful. And they were like, so we're going to switch to Apple Silicon. We're going to move away from Intel. And Apple does this every 10 or 12 years. If you're old enough, you remember when they switched from PowerPC to Intel in 2005, 2006, 2007. It's a thing Apple does. It's like, it's part of the life of being a Mac user, which most filmmakers are, because a lot of the filmmaking tools are really powerful on Mac. So Apple, when they did that, when they announced they were moving to Apple Silicon, they gave like a rough outline of what it's going to be like. We're going to do this first and then sort of like a two-year window to new Mac Pros. What they didn't mention in that outline and what basically no rumor mentioned until like the day before it came out was a brand new type of Mac called the Mac Studio, which is in between the Mac Mini. The Mac Mini is like usually around a thousand or like 700 bucks. And then the Mac Pro is like 6,000. And the Mac Studio is either 2,000 or 4,000, depending upon how you spec it out. And honestly, it's like a very good sweet spot for filmmakers and film schools. And I'm really happy it came out because, you know, the Mac mini is usually underpowered for filmmakers. Like I always have a Mac mini floating around for like some weird thing. Like, oh, I want to run video scopes. I'll plug in the Mac mini. It's like, 
a really good, useful, do anything little thing, but it's not really beefy enough for like, I shot 8K and I want to play a lot of video files or I need to noise correct or, you know, all the stuff filmmakers do. You're, you're going to get a little frustrated by a Mac Mini. But $6,000 for a Mac Pro is a lot of money. The Mac Studio is like, hey, what if I land in that sweet spot in the middle where it's like 2000 but it's super powerful. In the $6,000 one, you can have eight streams of 8K video playing at the same time, which wow. is batshit crazy. That's if you get the $4,000 one, you can have 16 <laughs> streams of 8K video playing at the same time, which is batshit crazy. Who needs like, that? I mean, uh, so podcast? The, well, the, so the thing I always talk about when I talk about that, I'm going to talk about that in the review that we're going to run here at No Film School, is that that is a useful demonstration of power, even though you're not likely to run nine screens at the same time. Like, let's say you're cutting, you know, it's not uncommon to shoot 10, 12 cameras on a concert. When you're editing, if you're editing in multicam, the computer has to effectively bring all of those streams into memory. So what it's really showing off is it's not showing off that, you you know, you very it's very rare you have 16 streams of 8K showing up in your screen at the same time. It happens. It's not common. But let's say you shot this concert 8K with 16 cameras. This is saying you on this computer, you'll be able to freely cut the multicam and have it be smooth and seamless and feel fluid, which is not something you can usually do on a less powerful machine. So that's what the demo is more about. It's more about that. But like that's a hard thing to explain. So it's cooler to just be like, here's 16 streams and they're all playing in real time. And then they launched a new monitor at the same time, and new monitor is only two grand, which seems expensive until you remember their last monitor was six grand. And the whole thing with the new monitor is as a slick built-in webcam because of Zoom, and it has really slick speakers built in. And that's honestly the most exciting part for me is I'm curious to see Apple's put a lot of work lately into making the built-in speakers sound good. Like 10 years ago, everybody needed to have external... I guess we'll find out. But like, yeah, how good is good? And like, what level or scale? Like, yeah. good enough for, you know, not really like, to edit off, right? Well, my Real. suspicion is that people will be editing off this and small projects will be approving off this. Like, obviously, Chris Nolan is not going to approve a feature mix off of it. You're still going to take that into a suite. But like, I think you're going to start to see a lot of smaller projects end up doing their mix off of these is my guess if they sound as good as I think they are going to sound. And that's an interesting place to be because five years ago, you always had to get like a Mackie panel and then like, you know, some studio monitors or whatever I'm looking, I've just got some cheapy like Dayton audio monitors that I've got hooked up with a Fosse panel. And like that, everybody had to do that. You had to do that to have audio, but Apple's put a lot of work into their speakers lately and they're starting to sound really good. And here's the thing. If all your client is going to have is these, then it kind of makes the most sense to just use these to match what your client has. So it's sort of an interesting time and space. Yeah, this is cool. We've talked about the ARM thing for a while. It's been coming. <laughs> so it's like yeah. it's finally here and functioning. And I'm really curious to read the review. I feel like this is... What we'll want to do is, is really know if people are going to switch. Like if this is going to be like, that's what I'm going to post on from now on. That's the new solution. Especially some people we've had on the podcast, like Todd, who uses a PC. I'd be curious to know if this will push him. I mean, I think, honestly, I think, I think it's over. I think it's like, just switch, just do it. I think there's no reason to do anything else. The older Intel apps run great. I haven't, re I haven't run into a single thing yet that I couldn't run on the newer Apple Silicon. I've been running Apple Silicon for about a year, and I haven't had a single time where I was like, ah, oh, darn it, I can't use X because they have technology that lets you use the older software. So like, it's great. I think it's really good. I'm like, it, it's so fun to be back in a time where like, oh, Apple's going to come out with new, more powerful machines. And like, it's two years since the old Mac Pros. So they have their life cycle. They had two years where you could use them. And I think we're now back in a place where Apple will probably be coming out with something new and faster every two years. Like if you buy this, you know, if you bought the, the fastest Mac you could buy in 2013, it was still the fastest Mac you could buy in 2018. But I, th but I think we're back to the like, uh, no, if you buy this now, in two years, there will be something faster. And in two years, there'll be something faster. And that's good for filmmakers because we, we use a lot of power. You know, like if you go out and you shoot a bunch of 12K, you need a machine that can handle it all. Yeah. I mean, as the raw, as the data, as there needs to be more data and stuff, the machines are going to obviously need to be more powerful to handle it. Yeah. And like, that's just not going away. Like filmmakers just keep up in 
the amount they want to the resolutions they want to shoot. And as they up the things they want to shoot, they up the processing we need in post. All right, moving on to Ask No Film School. Our first of two quick topics in Ask No Film School is sort of a quickie Ask No Film School this week. We've received a couple emails, which I think are fair. Like, I like arguing with people. It's fun. This is what the internet was invented for. But we've received a couple emails that are like, hey, can you talk? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the generous version, which is, hey, could you talk more about why crypto and NFTs seem to bother you guys so much? Some people said it was cringe how much we uh, talk about hating them and maybe we're missing out on the future. And so I thought it would be good to give a like, I am like radically against crypto and NFTs. And I thought it would be good to give like sort of a more blanket explanation as to why it is that I find these two technologies to be very suspect in a like less inflammatory way. So here's my big frustration with these technologies. They are solutions in search of problems. So I'm a little old, but like, Within a year or two of like email hitting the mainstream in 1997, 1998, or, you know, social networking coming on the scene 2004, 2005, 2006, it, these new technologies that rolled out, it was obvious how they solved a problem we already had. We already had this problem of trying to communicate to each other, trying to stay connected to each other, trying to keep information flowing. And these solutions came and it was so obvious what they solved that they immediately replaced all sorts of other things. Because the solution was so good that it was worth whatever sacrifices they brought. The problem I have with crypto, Web3, and NFTs in general is that a lot of times they are solutions in search of a problem. Meaning there's this obsession with like, oh, well, we could do this and we could do that. And the distributed uh, ledger can do all of these specific things. But a lot of the things that are talking about, I'm like, well, but there's already another simpler, less resource intensive way to do it. And so doing it this way only solves a problem if you have very specific use cases and very specific objections to outside actors. So like one of the things that keeps coming up over and over for me is NFTs and like, oh, we can use NFTs to fund all these things we're excited about. And it's like, well, yeah, but like Kickstarter already does exactly what you're talking about for so many of these things, right? Or like not replacing Kickstarter, there's some new platforms where you're actually taking an investment stake. You're not just promoting something you enjoy. Both of those platforms took off immediately. As soon as people recognized what they could do, they were like, oh, oh yeah, let's do that. And then like, we've all seen movies that got financed on Kickstarter or these newer platforms. I know people have used those platforms. Like it just immediately took off. We've been hearing about NFTs and crypto for years and years and years now. And the only use case that seems to come out of it is this insane speculative asset gamble on stuff like the board apes where like i don't see the like i don't see the use case i don't see a board ape as being something that like in an emergency like people talk about it as like a reserve asset that you're like oh i could put some savings in a board ape but i'm like you know if you're in an emergency situation trying to get liquidity out of a board ape seems really difficult and complicated you know i don't know if you guys have been following all of the crypto exchanges in the united arab emirates and how they're dealing with a tremendous pressure from Russian billionaires trying to liquidate their crypto holdings in incredibly fast time periods in order to avoid sanctions. But like, it's a complicated thing. So like, if we're going to invest in a new technology, which has a tremendous resource drain, like in gate, you know, Bitcoin is burning as much electricity as Argentina during a period in which we desperately need to stop burning greenhouse gases. It needs to have such a compelling use case that it's like obvious and immediately take upable. But like, we're just not there yet. Like, we're in a we're in this weird place where there's all of this tremendous hype about something that like it seems pretty obvious to me there's no there there and so like yeah I'll admit sometimes I make too much fun of people who are excited about the platform because it seems obvious to me that there's nothing there and that's probably not very nice but like <laughs> I mean it's probably you know when you're being grifted like I like I've participated I've been grifted I have straight up been grifted I was paleo for like four years and that shit's dumb that shit is like there's no science behind it. I fell into a grift. I totally like bought the weird supplements. I fully, I look back on that time in my life and I'm like, <laughs> I was being grifted by weird paleo people and I bought their supplements. And like, I like, you know, and I look back on it and I'm like, people being mean to me wouldn't have helped. Right. Like I had friends right. who were like, that sounds like, that sounds like a pyramid scheme and an eating disorder. It doesn't sound like an actual way of life. 
we get very defensive about our choices and yeah. we get and and our investments and our paths because culturally we tie so much of our value to our rightness, our success. We lack humility on a fundamental level, especially men. And yeah. there's a lot of just general like I know the way. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I did it right. Making mistakes is normal and human and path to a better life once you can embrace that and own it, in my opinion. And I think I, I, I take it to this kind of macro level because I think you nailed it on the micro level. I've heard and witnessed and been subject to and mostly stayed out of so many arguments and discussions about crypto and where it's going. And I've said before, personally, for me, it's just like uh, I'm not interested in getting on that roller coaster. Like it's not a ride I want to go on at this the Disneyland of life. But I get that some people are into it. And I, you know, part of that is because they've seen some people get very rich very quickly. And that's incredibly enticing. But I think you bring up this interesting idea about the defensiveness of or acceptance of being conned. There's so many kinds of cons. They are run around us all the time. And one of the reasons they work is because, especially right now, is because we get so much thrown at us so quickly. We have to make very quick decisions and assessments about what we're going to do within a moment with very little information. As a result, there are certain like triggers or keywords, not triggers like woke culture triggers. Sorry, those who hate that stuff. <laughs> like Triggers like there are, there are literally like buttons you push on a brain where if you do say certain words and certain combos or certain things, you open up certain doors. And People have to make decisions quickly. And there's tons of literature and study and PhD work on these topics. And I've been interested in read some of it. And there's a fascinating things of like, you can, you can do a con where you're actually giving something of some value. You're just like upselling it like crazy. Or you can just get someone to agree to one thing when you're actually just really giving them something else. Like there's just layers and layers and the internet and the digital age is so wash with it because, and so that's why, I, long story short, I think that's why a lot of us look at what's happening with the explosion of crypto and there's a certain feeling of like, this feels like something that is, in many cases, people are being asked to make a quick assessment and, ha and maybe FOMO is one of the guiding principles, but there's a couple other ways you get people in on something and then they're in and then, you know, and so that's why it has the hallmark of, of a lot of things that could be thrown at you and then could work for some people, though. Does it mean it's a, it's a smart bet? You know, there's all kinds of questions abound and I don't have the answers. But we talk about it a lot because it's being talked about a lot and it's all over. We get lots of requests to cover how it's impacting filmmakers and budget. And we've done that and we've had people on this podcast to talk about how they're doing it. And it's something we continue to monitor and watch. And it's a fascinating little wrinkle in this era. I will also add, though, that personally, I think I've said this before, one of my other personal distastes for it is that it's like a really negative thing in terms of the environment. And I just think that the biggest bad thing that faces us, aside from maybe the threat of nuclear war at the moment, but the biggest other bad thing that's kind of long-term and omnipresent is just climate change that we do like less. We are so fucked. <laughs> like there are things we could do to make it worse or better. And crypto is one of those things where it's like, we are definitely, that is like a hundred percent the wrong thing to be doing right now for our biggest problem. I mean, don't commercial fly on a commercial airline. Like that's a bad one too. But like, there are things you got to do and there are things you don't got to do. And I put crypto in a, like, you don't got to do it, but you know, Hey, everybody makes their own choices. I'm trying not to judge. I guess that, that's, I totally agree with that. Like, you know, the, like the world's on fire. Like, <laughs> like we have to, we should like anything we can do to reduce. And it's just also one of those frustrating things with crypto where I'm like, I genuinely enjoy riding my bike everywhere. And I'm one of those people who rides my bike for 90% of my trips. But like, I'm also like, no, me riding my bike for 90% of my trips has no impact. If somebody else is like, I'm going to burn rainforests in order to buy heroin. It's like, well, but or, no, come or on, burgers. guys. Yeah, like, I mean, there's just, there's so many bad things we do that like, yes, yeah. that like, it's hard for us to be like, I, I'm not sitting here on a hill saying like, I do all the best things for the climate. I don't. But when I see something that's kind of an option, I'm like, ah, 
can I get by without that? Yes. And so I think what you're saying is like, I, you do a really good thing with your bike. But yeah, there's like people, ca- like the guy who's driving around the corner to pick up coffee. That's not me, by the way. But the guy who's doing that is doing so much worse, so much bad yeah. for no reason. Well, but, and then the other reason I get so worked up about that in specific is that like filmmakers are marks. Like we're easy marks because we desperately want to make our fucking movies. We want to make our movies so goddamn fucking bad. And you need, it's a resource intensive industry. And so like, we are always trying, you know, what's Ron Howard's whole thing is he's like, I'm just a boat captain trying to get on another ship. And that's Ron Howard. Ron Howard's (laughs) out there trying to get on another ship. And like, I think was his last ship solo a Star Wars story? Maybe. I'm sure he's had a ship since then, but maybe not. I hope so. Um, I hope so. That was specifically from an interview about, the heart of the sea, which was about ships and stuff, which I thought was a good analogy, but it's like, Oh yeah. And that was, that's since then. We're all trying to get fucking movies made. Like it's hard as shit to get movies made for everybody, you know? And so we're mar- like, we're like, we, we desperately want to make our fucking movies. And so someone comes to us with something like NFTs and they're like, and with NFTs, you're going to be able to get your movies made. And we're like, what? All right, let's figure it out. And like, I went through a whole thing where I was like, all right, well, let me figure it out. And then I looked at it and I was like, I, the, I, it was like um, the underwear gnomes were like, step one, steal underwear, step three, profit. And <laughs> and you're like, well, what, what's step two? And I looked at NFTs and I was like, I legit don't see how I could get movies made with this. Like, and I don't see how this is going to, and I was like, I don't see how this is different than the other things that I also, like, it just didn't. And I'm like, but I guess I get really worked up about it because like, I think about me at 24, like, and I'm like, I would totally be snookered by this because I just want to fucking make my goddamn movies like so bad. I just like have this burning passion to make movies. And it's like, that makes us vulnerable. And so we have to be extra careful. I mean, this is why agents and managers exist, right? Because yeah. without them, we'd be like, yeah, sure. Let me make this movie for free. Can I sell my house? I gotta make this movie. And it, the agents managers are supposed to be there and be like, no, 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 you need to pay this person to make a movie because they're good at it. And they're going to make you money and we'll make sure they get paid because we just yeah, want to do this. But I, and it's on like some, on some level they're running their own con, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think mean, that what, like what I think would work. Right. But what I think you're, you're hitting on is something we've also talked about, maybe not specifically in conjunction, but that filmmakers are such an easy mark. Sometimes a filmmaker is also running a con, like they don't pay anybody that they, or they're going to do you a favor one day or whatever. But like, there's, there's so much of it. It's just so much a part of it. It's like everybody who gets off the bus, so to speak, in Los Angeles is like an easy mark and a target. And even the people who come from here, like me, like we're also targets, like because we want a thing so badly and we want to see the yes. Again, like I said, there's triggers, like you want to see the yes to making your movie and you're going to see it maybe where you shouldn't or maybe where you're being led to believe there is a yes. And that's when you get what you think is jaded when somebody's like, you meet somebody who reads your script and is like, oh, we're going to make this. And I, I was in, I was in a meeting with distributors, quote unquote, who were making promises that sounded so good that it was like, there's something wrong here because we're used to hearing no's. Like if you're not hearing some version of a no or something that sounds not so good or, you know, then you start to be like, yeah, this person's trying to con me because, and not doing a very good job of it. But anyway, oh yeah, it's just such a minefield. And I think that's why we feel, I think you're right. I think we feel a certain, like, we don't want anybody to jump headlong into something. Filmmakers are are often trying to marshal their resources to survive while they build a career. And so something risky, high risk, high reward, relatively new, just feels like a tough sell. But that, yeah, there's also the old age old thing of like invest in things that you understand. I think that's from like one of those books that's like investing 101. It's like if you understand it and you're and you get it and you can see how it works and it's going to profit, then uh, by all means. But like if you don't, don't do it. And if you don't know the definition of last man standing scam, stay completely away from NFTs. All right. Yeah, you don't want to be left holding the bag. (laughs) <laughs> yes, which is which is which is why they have to advertise at the Super Bowl. All right, guys. So that's the No Film School podcast for this week. I'm on the internet at Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E on Twitter and Instagram and, and YouTube and various places. Check me out there and I'll see you next week. And I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. Thank you so much for listening. Everything we talked about today and more can be found at nofilmschool.com. We are updating the stories we talked about today, literally. 
as I speak. That's how much we're updating stuff. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and YouTube, and send all your questions and your frustrations with the things we talk about in our opinions to editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks again for listening. 